Welcome to another edition of the Law and Gospel Devotional. I'm Eric Sorensen, pastor at Hillside Church and contributor to 1517 in numerous ways. Good to be here with you again on this Tuesday morning. Every Tuesday morning, we gather together to look at God's Word and specifically look to see where God's two words of law and gospel are in any given passage. And uh, as is typical, what we do is we take a lectionary text from the upcoming weekend and then dive in to find how God's Word is speaking to us today. So without further ado, let's go ahead and do that now. Um, we'll start off right here at the beginning. Uh, first of all, what are the texts for this Palm Sunday? Well, the gospel text is, uh, there's actually a couple different options. For those who, uh, it, uh, there's some churches that basically read almost the entire account of the Passion uh, in Mark chapter 14 and 15. They would refer to this Sunday as Passion Sunday. Uh, most churches, I think, refer to this as Palm Sunday, of course, celebrating the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem as indeed their long-awaited Messiah and King. And that's really what the Old Testament text for this Sunday is all about, too. Uh, you can read it in Zechariah 9. I won't read the whole thing, but but it really is, is pointing to that day when Jesus arrives in Jerusalem, saying, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you righteous and having salvation. Is he humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey? Hold on to that word, humble because that is going to be very, very significant in our time together today. The psalm is again also talking about the arrival of Jesus at his triumphal entry. It's a prophecy about that. Verse 24 of the psalm for this weekend says, this is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Save us, we pray, O Lord, O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. Now, in case you were wondering what Hosanna means, it literally does mean save us. And so when Jesus enters into the city at, the, at his triumphal entry, uh, the people are yelling, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. You can see that in the gospel accounts of it. And so really the psalm is, is looking forward to the day when people will literally shout these words in acclamation over his coming. And then we have an, our epistle text, which we're going to look deeper at today, which is Philippians 2 verses 3 through 11. And what you're going to find in this passage is, <laughs> well, it's kind of a flesh killer. And what I mean by that is it's going to show us how we ought to live, how we ought to see others. And in the process, well, it's going to reveal to us our some of our problems. In other words, there's quite a bit of law in this passage. And so let's go ahead and dive in. Paul begins saying in verses 3 and 4 of uh, Philippians 2, do nothing... No things from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, there's that word, count others more significant than yourselves. More significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. I'm telling you, I could read this passage 40 times, and every time I hear the words, count others more significant than yourself, I think to my, 
I just think, my goodness, that is so contrary to human nature. We're just people that are prone to looking out for number one. And yet the ethic that Paul puts forward for the Christian church is that we would instead look at others as being more important. That's another way of saying more significant, more important than what we want in any given moment. Woo, pretty tough. And so you might be prone to thinking, oh, that is that all? And immediately finding yourself <laughs> sweating more than you would like. And of course, the model for this, Paul says, is Christ. It's really, this is a passage in which Christ is held up as, as our example. Uh, verse 5, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Yes, indeed, as John the Baptist in the famous Grunewald woodcut points to Christ, Paul is pointing to Christ here. He says, see what Jesus does in the cross? See what Jesus does in his life as he serves and, 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 and sacrifices for others? That's what you should be doing too. That should be what the life of the Christian looks like. Now, I don't want to run past what we read in that brief passage too quickly because there's some very significant theological points. I don't know that even Paul was intending to make significant theological points when he wrote it. Nevertheless, we find out some very, very crucial things. Number one, it's a very clear claim of Christ's divinity. In verse six, we're told that he was in the form of God. Number two, when it says he's emptied himself, well, we, we need to define that a little bit because there has been, believe it or not, quite a bit of controversy in the church's history about exactly what that means and to what extent Christ emptied himself. Did he cease being God when he came in the flesh? Does he remain God when he comes in the flesh? And if so, how? Well, the way that we would, would say it is that uh, what it means here to empty himself is to basically lay aside the privileges that would come with his deities. He, with his deity, he submits to all the frailty that a human body has to submit to. This is why, indeed, we do see that Jesus really suffers. Jesus cries real tears. It's not an act. He actually experiences what it is to be human, and yet it is an act of his will that he chooses to experience that because he has the rights and privileges privileges as God himself to avoid that. As he tells his disciples, he could call down legions of angels to protect him from those who would harm him. And yet he willfully chooses not to do it. And so treating others more significant than yourself, really using Paul's logic here, looks like it looks like dying for them. And so you might hear this and you might think to yourself, well, um, I'm, I'm kind of like this uh, really poor impression of Spider-Man in this meme here. I mean, you know, I, every time you read those passages where Paul will say something like, imitate me as I imitate Christ, you know, Christ is the standard. And you go, well, yeah, Paul's pretty, seems to be pretty good at it. And then you think about your own life and you go, goodness gracious, I fall way too short. And so, but the passage isn't done. Verse 9. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So, so the point of this all is that Paul 
basically is wanting us to see our lives having that same sort of trajectory. That as we live out these our days here, we are to consider others more significant than ourselves. We are to die to ourselves for their good. And that eventually what will happen is just as Christ was exalted, though not to the same degree, we also will be lifted up. We also will be risen from the dead. We will no longer have to suffer or sacrifice anymore when we arrive in front of God's throne. That's the idea. When our knees are bowed, the suffering will in fact be over for us in the difficulty and the struggle. And so uh, that's really the, the picture. Pretty simple to understand what he's getting at. But as you read this, you, you, you're kind of just prone to hearing in the background, just do it. You, hey, it's easy enough to understand. We know what he's telling us. We know we should do it. There's no doubt about it. I mean, what could, who could possibly deny the beauty and impact of living life in such a way? And to the degree that in my life, I have known people that have all too imperfectly sought to live this way. Nevertheless, they sought to, they truly were beautiful, wonderful people. And just the, the idea that they weren't thinking about themselves to some extent was extraordinarily attractive. And so we can't deny what Paul says here. It would be fantastic if we all lived this way. But of course, at the same time, we have to acknowledge the, uh, the need. As we acknowledge the need to live this way, we're painfully aware of the ways we fall short as we read it. If this is what I'm supposed to be, well, it's clear that I'm not anywhere near where I should be. And the truth is being told just do it actually won't make us do it. This is the great, this is the great secret. We, we think naturally that if we're just told what to do, then we'll do it. This is what the Greek philosophers believe. This is what Aristotle taught, that if man just had the right knowledge that they could do the right things. But oh, good gracious, as Paul shows in Romans, we know what we should do. But our sin nature doesn't want to do it. <laughs> we just we want to preserve our ourself and our comfort and our flesh at the cost of our neighbor if need be. And yet, and yet, there is good news to be found in this passage. I mean, just the very description of what Jesus does and remembering he does it for us is, of course, a reminder of the good news. But there's also, it goes even deeper than that, because what will produce a life that loves our neighbors? Well, it's knowing that we are seen as if we have done that on account of what Christ has already accomplished for us. Remember what Paul says at the beginning of his instruction as he goes into describing the life of Christ and what he did. He says these very interesting words, have this mind among yourselves and then follows it up with which is yours already in Christ Jesus. Christian, you possess this. You are declared as if you have done it in the sight of God on account of what Jesus has accomplished before you because of his perfect life, death, resurrection, and ascension and his continual intercession for you. At the right hand of God the Father, it's as if God sees you clothed in his righteousness so that it's like you've always loved your neighbors the way you ought to. Here's what I mean. Let me 
take a little theological category from many of the, or, or quite a few of the writings of, of Martin Luther. On the one hand, he talks about a concept known as two kinds of righteousness. And, and maybe a helpful way to think about this is one kind of righteousness is vertical facing. It's between us and God. That kind of righteousness, the kind of righteousness we need to satisfy God, to satisfy uh, his, his need for justice, that is purely given on account of what Christ has done for us. This is what Luther writes. This righteousness then is given to men in baptism and whenever they are truly repentant. Therefore, a man can with confidence boast in Christ and say, this is just glorious, mine are Christ's living doing and speaking his suffering and dying mine as much as if i had lived done spoken suffered and died as he did do you hear that all of christ's is mine by faith begun in our baptism all that is christ's is given to me gratis by his grace alone you don't need to do anything at all to fulfill the vertical requirement for righteousness because Jesus has done it for you. That's the first kind of righteousness and by far the most important. But there's a second part of righteousness covered in this slide right here. He says this, in regard to a second kind of righteousness, this is the righteousness done for our neighbors. He says, this is that manner of life spent profitably in good works in the first place, in slaying the flesh and crucifying the desires with respect to the self. In the second place, this righteousness consists of in love to one's neighbor, and in the third place, in meekness and fear towards God. Now, very important, here's what he says right after that. This righteousness is the product of the righteousness of the first type. In other words, the type that we're given by grace on account of what Jesus Christ has done. This second kind of righteousness is a fruit of already being declared righteous in Christ. What's the point? Here's the big idea. We don't humble ourselves with others to be saved, we don't consider others more significant than ourselves or endeavor to, to sacrifice and serve others in order to be saved, in order to earn salvation. No, no. But we do those things because the one who already humbled himself to the point of death has already saved us. It is the fruit of already knowing we are righteous. That is what produces a life that would be free to give up everything for the good of neighbor, that would be free to consider others more significant than myself. It's dwelling on the gospel truth that Christ has done it all. Folks, I'm telling you, that is what produces a life of service to others and indeed love for others. So that is our passage for this weekend. Uh, or for this Tuesday that's that's a part of this upcoming weekend service. I pray it's been uh, an encouragement to you and a blessing to you, and uh, I wish you a very good week. God's richest blessings to you.